The New Testament reading today is John 15, verses 1 through 5. The Old Testament reading and the sermon text is Psalm 80. John 15, verses 1 through 5, Psalm 80. Before I read the Word of God this morning, I would like to encourage the congregation to come prepared every Lord's Day to hear God's Word and to be settled in order to hear God's Word in the congregation as well. I know that can sometimes be difficult for parents of little ones, so please don't misunderstand me. Sometimes it requires you to tend to them. I understand that. But we should do our very best to come to be eager to hear the Holy Scriptures and to be settled when they are read and when they are preached. As, as a preacher of God's Word, I, I do my best to not get in the way of the Holy Scriptures, you see, to read them and to explain them to you, to make application uh, from the text and to not uh, get in the way of, of all of that um, because this is God's Word. It has power in, in itself. Um, and we as God's people should be very eager to hear uh, the Scriptures. And so I pray that that is your disposition even at this time. Let's go now to the reading of God's Word. John 15, verses 1-5. through 5. Hear now the Word of the Lord. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, Jesus says. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him... It is He that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Let's go now to Psalm 80, which is our sermon text for today. Psalm 80. The title of this psalm is, To the Choir Master, According to the Lilies, probably a musical tune, A Testimony of Asaph, a Psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted And for the Son, whom you made strong for yourself, they have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, may they perish at the rebuke of your face. 
But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. In the past, I've noted that the Psalms express the whole range of human emotions. And so there is a Psalm for every season of life, therefore. And this is one reason why the Psalms are so beloved by the people of God. This Psalm that we are considering this morning is a community lament. It is a strong expression of grief and sorrow offered up to God by the nation of Israel. And it is also a cry to God for help and for deliverance from trouble. And although the situation that prompted the writing of this psalm is very far removed from us, I think there is much for us to learn. Uh, This psalm is useful to the people of God even today in times, in all times and in all places. Indeed, it should be dear to our hearts and on our lips, especially in times where the people of God are troubled communally or corporately. Uh, For we know that God's people will, from time to time, experience trials and tribulations. They will experience devastation, disappointment, and despair in life. This psalm shows us what we are to do in moments like these. We see here in the psalm that we are to run to God and not away from Him. We are to run to God, for He is our shepherd, We are to come boldly before Him, crying out to Him for mercy and grace, appealing to His promises for His name's sake. So what was the situation that prompted the writing of this psalm? What was the trouble that led Israel to produce this impassioned plea, this this psalm of of lament? Uh, What did they experience that produced this A beautiful psalm for us. Not all commentators agree, but the majority opinion seems to be that this psalm was written at the time when the northern kingdom of Israel was carried away into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. It's good for us to know our Bibles, brothers and sisters, and to know the history of the Jewish people. Indeed, uh, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel in the northern kingdom, was carried away into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And most would agree that this psalm was written and sung in the southern kingdom. And it is a lament concerning the sad state of Israel as a nation. Israel was in this moment divided. And the northern tribes, ten of them, had been overrun by a foreign power And so this was a prayer for mercy. It was a prayer for deliverance and restoration offered up by the Israelites who remained in the south. Only two tribes remained in the south. And I think it would be beneficial for me to very briefly rehearse the history of Israel so that we might better understand this psalm and more effectively put ourselves in the place of the psalmist and of the original worshippers. Indeed, we are to see that these were very dark days for Israel. We know that Israel's story begins with the call of Abraham in approximately 2000 BC. God called Abram out from the nations, promised to bless him and to make his name great. 
He promised to bring a nation from him and to bless all the nations of the earth through this nation. And this is the beginning of the kingdom of Israel. We know that Abram's name would be changed to Abraham. He had many sons. And his descendants would eventually go down into captivity in Egypt. There they would suffer for a time. But there they would also grow very numerous. And in approximately 1450 B.C., God led His people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm through Moses, the Deliverer. God entered into a covenant with Israel. It was a covenant of works that promised blessing in the land of Canaan, conditioned upon obedience, and threatened exile from the land should they disobey the terms of the covenant that God transacted with them. This is very important for us to realize. God redeemed Israel from Egypt, led them through the wilderness, brought them into the promised land, but there was a covenant transacted with that nation. It was a covenant of works. Obey and be blessed. Disobey and be expelled from this land of promise. These were the terms of the covenant that God made with them. And of course, God's grace was with them too. The unconditional promises that were made to Abraham concerning salvation and the Messiah were preserved and promoted in this covenant that God transacted with Israel. In approximately 1400 B.C., it was Joshua who would lead the people of Israel into the Promised Land. The tribes of Israel were at first ruled by judges, but in approximately 1000 B.C., God set King David on, his, on the throne. Israel was united under David. And Israel flourished as a nation for a time. God did also transact a covenant with David. The promises and conditions of this covenant were not altogether unrelated from the promises and conditions of the covenant transacted with Abraham and with Israel in the days of Moses. But the covenant that God made with David had to do with kingship. In brief, David would be blessed as king over Israel. Kings would descend from him. If they obeyed, they would be blessed. If they disobeyed, God would discipline them. And the unconditional promise was this. A king would descend from David whose kingdom would never come to an end. It would be an eternal kingdom. The kingdom of Israel flourished in the days of David. It reached its apex of power and prosperity in the days of Solomon, David's son. But sin soon ravaged the kingdom of Israel. And by the year 950 B.C., the kingdom of Israel was already divided with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And if you're able to follow along with the numbers that I'm throwing before you, you'll realize it was a very brief time between King David, King Solomon, and the division of the tribes of Israel, ten in the north, two in the south. A sin a very quickly ravaged the nation of Israel, and they bore the consequences of that. Israel and Judah, and that's what these two kingdoms were called, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, were sometimes at peace, sometimes they were at war. Good and bad kings would rise and fall, but for the most part the kings of Israel were evil. And as I've said, in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. And it wouldn't be until 587 B.C. that the southern kingdom would fall to the Babylonians. And finally, in 538 B.C., some of the captives of Israel began to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple 
which had been destroyed. So this psalm, which we are considering today, was likely written by someone living in the southern kingdom of Judah at the time of the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians. And I would like for you to imagine it for just a moment. Imagine what that would be like to live in the southern kingdom there, to feel the sorrow, to feel the fear. Imagine being one of God's faithful people, longing to see the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham and praying for the flourishing of the nation of Israel. And yet, what do you see there? As one of God's faithful people living in the southern kingdom, what do you see? You see sin. You see faithlessness. You see division all around you. And you see destruction. Indeed, there would be in your heart a great sense of sadness, a great sense of disappointment. And also there would be fear. If the northern kingdom was overrun, perhaps the southern kingdom would be next. And so we are to put ourselves in that setting, I think, to fully understand and appreciate Psalm 80, which is our text for today. Disappointment, fear in the hearts of God's people. And yet we find God's people, the faithful ones, crying out to the Lord for mercy. I really tried to put myself in, in, in the setting of, of the faithful in the southern kingdom this past week. I even uh, did a little bit of research to, to look up and to see how large is nation, the nation of Israel was it in comparison to California, you know? Um, it's very small. Can you imagine, by the way, living in Southern California if all of a sudden a foreign power came and overran Northern California? Do you understand how concerning that would be to us, you know, to be that close to, to such a threat? Um, can, can you understand how unsettling that would be to us to, to see... Um, fellow Americans, uh, fellow Californians so close to us, over, overrun. It would be a very unsettling thing. And yet the nation of Israel uh, is, is much, much smaller than the state of California, maybe even a twentieth of the size. And so put yourself there. Imagine being a faithful uh, Israelite in, in, in these days, living in the southern kingdom, Judah, and, and seeing the Assyrians, this great and mighty, powerful nation, come and just absolutely overwhelm uh, your Brethren, your kinsmen in the north. Now, that is the setting. And so I've asked you to use your imagination to put yourself there in that 722 BC setting. But in fact, you may not need to strain too hard with your imagination, for when we look out upon the visible and universal church of God today, we see something very similar. Do you understand what I'm trying to do here? I'm trying to get you to think about God's covenant people. Uh, that was the setting in 722 B.C. I, those in the south were looking upon God's covenant people in the north, and they saw sin and devastation, faithlessness, destruction. But we, living under the new covenant, need to look not on a geographical region so much as, as, as God's visible church, God's covenant people, as manifested within the church today. And when we look out upon the church today, the visible and universal church, what do we see, brothers and sisters, except sin, faithfulness, devastation, destruction. And so I do believe that this psalm applies to us in this way. Uh, this psalm should be our prayer as well as we pray for the flourishing of God's kingdom on earth today. We can take up this psalm as our own and put it on our lips and say, Lord, have mercy upon us. Bring restoration. Bring salvation. We see something very similar. Unfaithfulness, division, and devastation. 
The situations are not at all identical, of course, but here I am comparing Old Covenant Israel with New Covenant Israel as she appears to our natural eyes. There are enough similarities that enable us to pick up this psalm and to sing it as our own in light of the arrival of the Christ and His kingdom. Notice that there is a repeated refrain in this psalm. It is first encountered in verse 3. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. It appears again in verse 7 with a slight alteration. There we read, Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Here in verse 7, God is called the God of hosts or the God of armies, a fitting and comforting thought for the people of Israel given the circumstances they were in. In verse 14, the psalmist again calls upon the God of hosts. But here he says, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine. And then lastly, in verse 19, the psalmist concludes with the refrain, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine, that we may be saved. The difference here is that God is called the Lord God of hosts. So the name Yahweh is used, and we know that this name for God does emphasize His covenant faithfulness. The God of Israel is the self-existent one. He is the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He is faithful. The name Yahweh reminds us of this, and so the psalm concludes with an appeal to the Lord God of hosts, the Lord who makes and keeps covenant with His people. Again, this would be a very comforting thing for the people of God to consider as they see destruction and devastation all around. God is the Lord of hosts. He is the God of the armies of heaven. He is powerful. That will bring comfort to our souls. But also, He is the Lord. He is the one who enters into covenants with His people and He keeps them. And so we can trust that Despite all of the devastation we see around us, God will be faithful to accomplish His purposes through us. The repeated phrase, let your face shine, is an echo of the ironic blessing found in Numbers 6.24-27. through 27. Aaron the priest and his descendants were to bless Israel with these words, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So here the psalmist is praying that God would show this favor to Israel. Israel had broken the covenant that God made with them. They were beginning to experience the covenant curses. But here in this repeated refrain, the psalmist is crying out to God for mercy and grace. He is asking the Lord to save them and to bless them despite their sin. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on this nation. Yes, we have broken your covenant. And yes, you are right to bring this judgment upon us. But Lord, have mercy upon us. Provide salvation for us. As I have said, though our situations differ significantly from the original situation, there is much for us to learn from the psalm. In particular, this psalm does teach us how to pray in times of disappointment and despair. And I know this congregation well enough to know that you've all experienced times of disappointment and despair. Indeed, some of our beloved members are experiencing such circumstances even now. And so, what shall we do? Where shall we go for comfort? How shall we pray? And I do believe that this psalm of lament will help us to know. Now, taking our cues from the four refrains that I've just mentioned, 
we see that this psalm is naturally divided into four parts. In verses 1 through 3, we find a prayer for deliverance. And here we learn that in times of trouble, in times of disappointment and despair, it is right for God's people to run to God as their shepherd. Dear brothers and sisters, we serve and we worship God Almighty, but we must remember that He is like a shepherd to His people. He is, he is tender. He is, he is near to us. Look at verse 1 with me. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. In the title, this psalm is said to be of Asaph. It was written then by a member of the Asaphian division of the temple choir. As I have said, the author lived in the southern kingdom, therefore, and ministered in the temple in Jerusalem, which at this time still stood. But his concern was for the northern kingdom. He cries out to God on behalf of Joseph, we see. Then he mentions the two northern tribes that descended from Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. O God, shepherd of Israel, Come and bring deliverance, have mercy and grace upon Joseph, upon Ephraim and Manasseh. The mention of Benjamin has puzzled some. Benjamin was one of the two southern tribes alongside Judah. And some have wondered if this psalm was indeed written in response to the conquest of the northern kingdom of the Assyrians. Why is the southern tribe of Benjamin listed? You know, you have Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh, northern kingdoms. That makes sense. We're crying out to, to God on behalf of them. But why the mention of, of Benjamin? I think there are good reasons for it. And it all has to do with unity. Yes, Israel was divided north and south. But the psalmist longs for unity. The psalmist longs to see Israel united and flourishing. And when we consider the twelve sons that descended from Jacob, who would become the twelve tribes of Israel, we see that Benjamin was the other son of Rachel, besides Joseph. And so when the psalmist cries out to God on behalf of Joseph, or Ephraim and Manasseh and Joseph, as Joseph's sons, and Benjamin, I think it is the unity of Israel that is being emphasized. In other words, the faithful of God, living in the southern kingdom, did not rejoice to see the division, nor did they celebrate the destruction of the northern kingdom, but they lamented it, and they longed to see restoration, revival, and reform in Israel. And I might ask you by way of application, do you have the same concern for God's kingdom today? Do you long to see the church united and flourishing does your heart break to see the sin, the faithlessness, the division, and the devastation of the visible and universal church of Christ today? It is right for us to call out to God and to plead with Him that He would make His church strong, true, and pure. Indeed, I believe we are to do this daily when we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Do you labor in prayer for God's church? Do you beseech God? Do you plead with Him, as the psalmist does here, to have mercy upon His people and to bring strength to His people, unity to His people? Do you plead with God on behalf of His people on earth? I think this psalm should prompt us to do this very thing. 
We are to run to God as our shepherd, for that is what He is. And now that the Christ has come, we can see with even greater clarity that it is so. God is our shepherd, and He has provided salvation for us through the Messiah, who said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But again Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And So the psalmist here cries out to God, the God of Israel, as the shepherd of Israel. And indeed He was that. But we see with even greater clarity now that we live under the new covenant how God is our shepherd. He is our shepherd through the Messiah. And He has provided the shepherd for us who laid down His life for the sheep in order to redeem us and reconcile us to the Father. God is our shepherd. The Messiah is our shepherd. And we are to run to Him in times of difficulty, in times of despair. He cares for us and He is near to us. We cannot forget this, brothers and sisters. We are to run into God's loving arms, especially in times of disappointment. For He is tender and He is kind. But we must not forget that He is also strong. And this is why the psalmist says in verse 2, Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Here we are reminded that our God, He is our shepherd, but He is strong and mighty He is able to save, and so we are to run to Him in days of difficulty. Secondly, in verses 4 through 7, we find the psalmist's complaint. And here we learn that in times of difficulty and despair, we are invited to bring our complaints to the Lord. Now, that word complaint might seem inappropriate to some. And truthfully, I I hesitated to use it um, for fear of being misunderstood. By no means do I think that we have the right to grumble against God. Uh, That is to say, to whine, gripe, and protest against Him. And that is not what I mean by complaint. Rather, by using the word complaint, I wish to encourage you to come to God in prayer with boldness and honesty concerning your affliction. In times of devastation, disappointment, and despair, God's people are certainly permitted to come before God and to moan before Him and to plead with Him for mercy. The thing that I wish to encourage you in is to come to God boldly in prayer, just as the psalmist does here in Psalm 80. Notice how bold the psalmist is in verses 4 through 7. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. After reading these verses, the word complaint does not seem too strong, does it? Uh, That seems to be exactly what the psalmist is doing. He's coming before God and he is complaining. How long, O Lord, will this go on? Why, Lord, have you afflicted us in in, in this way? I think it is a fitting word, in fact, 
Indeed, the psalmist's prayer is very bold. Notice, however, that the psalmist does not charge God with wrong. Nowhere does he suggest that God has acted unjustly towards the people of Israel. In fact, God was perfectly just and right to judge Israel for their sin. We cannot forget the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. If the people obeyed God's law, they would be blessed in the land. If they disobeyed, they would be vomited out of the land. And truly, Israel's sin was very great. Both king and people walked in wickedness. God was just to judge them in this way. And the psalmist knew this. Never did he charge God with wrong, but he did bring his complaint to the Lord. He did bring his sorrow. He cried out to the Lord for mercy. And I do believe that we are invited to do this very same thing. These psalms are inspired songs, brothers and sisters. These psalms were to be on the lips of God's people. So here we do have a model for prayer. We do have a model even for our singing that we are to imitate. We are invited to come boldly before the Lord. We are invited to come with honesty before God. The psalmist's prayer is both honest and bold, and we must remember that this prayer is Spirit-inspired. It is for God's people to sing. And brothers and sisters, by way of application, I might ask you this. Do you approach God in prayer with this kind of boldness and honesty? Do you? Do you run to Him as your shepherd in times of trouble, bringing your complaint to Him, Do you lay the truth concerning your afflictions at His feet? And yes, I must warn you, be careful as you do. You must come with reverential fear, remembering who it is that you approach. But in Christ Jesus, you are invited to with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think this is an important point of application for us to consider, because often... Perhaps this is true of you. I know it can be true of me. We come to God in prayer in not such a bold way. You know, our prayers sometimes can be rather dispassionate, you know. We come before God and we pray through the Lord's Prayer in kind of a, I don't, a, a cold way, perhaps. But here in the Psalms we see that, no, the people of God must come to God and, and, and lay out their hearts before Him. How long, O Lord, will this go on? We we, we are suffering here. We're in anguish. God, rise up in strength and in power and and come and save us. Bring us deliverance. Do you pray in that way to God? You're invited to. I think that we uh, ought to, brothers and sisters. Um, This is what the Scriptures model for us. Allow me to make two more observations about the psalmist's complaint before moving on. One, the psalmist's concern is not only the peace and prosperity of the people of God, but the glory of God amongst the nations. Do you see that here in this text? He's not only concerned that the people would would be comforted, that the people would prosper, but he's concerned for uh, the glory of God's name. In verse 6 we read, You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Instead of Israel being a blessing to the nations. They were a source of strife for their neighbors. And instead of Israel being honored amongst the nations and thus bringing glory to God, they were the laughing stock of their enemies. This bothered the psalmist. We're not a blessing to our neighbors, but a source of contention for them. We bring problems to them because of our sin and because of our weakness. And our enemies, they laugh at us. 
They mock us, they scoff us, and they scoff you, our God. And so the name of God was shamed within Israel at this time. And so the psalmist appeals to God on this basis. Two, this psalm is not only a complaint but a plea to God for deliverance and restoration. In fact, I think this is very important for us to notice. Do not come before God and merely complain to Him, but do also ask Him for deliverance. Lord, we are suffering now. Lord, we are in anguish. Lord, I am in turmoil internally. This is my complaint. This is my plea. But we must go beyond that and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on us. Bring deliverance. Bring deliverance from this time of despair. By your grace, Lord, be faithful to your covenant. Bless us in your presence. Save us from the just consequences of our sin. This was the psalmist's prayer. So in times of despair, I have encouraged you to run to God as your shepherd and to bring your complaints before Him with reverential fear. And now I say, do not forget the mercies of the Lord in times past. Look with me at verses 8-13. through 13. The psalmist speaks to God saying, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. You, it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. In the third point of this sermon, I am urging you to not forget the mercies of the Lord in times past when difficult days come upon you. And that application is drawn from the fact that the psalmist remembered the mercy and grace that God had shown to Israel even as the northern tribes were being conquered. Here God is portrayed not as a shepherd and Israel as a flock, but as a vine dresser and Israel as the vine. So we have these two images set before us of our God. God is our shepherd. God is also a vine dresser. You brought a vine out of Egypt, he says. And this is, of course, a reference to the Exodus event when God redeemed Israel from Egyptian bondage. He then says, you drove out the nations and planted it. This refers to the conquest of Canaan in the days of Joshua. It was the Lord who gave Israel the victory. The words, you cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, etc. Remind us of how God established Israel and caused Israel as a nation to, to flourish, especially in the days of King David and King Solomon. Here the psalmist reminds God of the mercy and grace that He had shown to Israel in times past. Now, doesn't that sound strange for me to say that the psalmist reminded God of these things. We know that God does not need to be reminded of anything, for He knows all things, past, present, and future. But that is what the psalmist does in this prayer, doesn't he? He comes before the Lord, and he reminds God of all that He had done for Israel in times past. All of the kindness that He had shown to Israel in times past. That is what he does in prayer. He appeals to God to show Israel favor now on the basis of the kindness that He had shown to them in times past. It is as if the psalmist said, Lord, 
Do not forget how gracious and kind you were to us in past generations. You redeemed us from Egypt. You entered into a covenant with us. You established us and made us fruitful. Do not throw it all away, Lord. Have mercy on us again. But the complaint returns in verse 12. Why then have you broken down its walls? The image is that of an established vineyard with walls built up and strong. That certainly was the case in the days of David and Solomon. Israel was like that well-established vineyard. Everything was in place. The nation was secure. Uh, But now the walls were broken down. And notice what the psalmist says. You have broken down the walls, O Lord. Why have you done this? Why have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar, probably a symbol of Assyria here. Um, The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. The psalmist was not ignorant as to why this happened. He knew that the terms of the covenant that God made with Israel in the days of Moses had been broken. He knew that uh, Israel deserved this judgment. Um, But he here appeals to God for mercy. Uh, These are not so much straightforward questions that he asks, but they are, in fact, appeals for mercy. God, think of all that you have done for this nation. Think of the mercy you have shown to them in generations past. Yes, we have sinned, O Lord, but have mercy on us again. Do not throw it all away. Do not throw it all away. I think again it is right for us to pray in this way, brothers and sisters. Uh, It is true that God does not need to be reminded of anything. But we are invited to come and pray to our God uh, in, in this way. Uh, to speak to Him as if He were a man, you know, for the sake of ourselves. And to say, Lord, remember what You've done for me in times past. Consider how You rescued me from sin and despair. Consider how You brought me to salvation in Christ Jesus. Look at what You have done for me in, in this life. But here I am languishing. Here I am despairing. Do not throw it all away, Lord. Of course, He will not throw it all away. We know this. But again, we're invited to come to Him in prayer and to bring these honest pleas and petitions before him. We see clearly that this is what the psalmist is doing as we continue along in verses 14 through 19. He is pleading for mercy based upon God's past mercies. Here the psalmist explicitly appeals to the Lord for mercy and grace. And dear brethren, this is what we must do in times of trouble when we are tempted to despair. Having remembered past mercies, we must appeal to the Lord to show us mercy and grace in the future. Verse 14, Turn again, O O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the Son whom you made strong for yourself. God sees all this we know, but the psalmist calls out to God, who sits enthroned in heaven in the midst of his army of angels, and says, Look down from heaven and see, Notice how freely the psalmist uses this anthropomorphic language in prayer. He speaks to God as if he were human, though he does not see. He speaks to Him in this way. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, he says, stir up your might, come save us. You brought a vine, you planted it, cleared the ground for it, turn again, look down and see, have regard. These are all things that humans do and not God, properly speaking. And yet the psalmist speaks to God in in this way. And I think that God does invite us to pray to Him in this way. He speaks, He invites us to speak to Him according to our perception of things, so that we might approach Him freely and from the heart. Again, God condescends to our weakness. We we may come to Him and speak to Him from our perception of things, though we know 
that things are really otherwise in the mind of God. Stated differently, when we approach God in prayer as the psalmist did, saying, look down from heaven and see, God does not belittle us and reject us, saying, don't you know that I am omnipresent and omniscient? You see, He doesn't belittle us in that way. No, but rather He brings Himself low for us and receives our weak and feeble prayers, knowing that to us it sometimes seems as if He does not see or as if He has forgotten. When the psalmist reminds God of His past mercies or calls upon Him to look, see, and remember, He does not reveal a poor understanding of the doctrine of God, but rather speaks instead as a man severely afflicted and burdened with grief. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the Son whom you made strong for yourself. What does this mean? Who is this Son that the psalmist refers to here in verses 14 and 15? Who is this Son? He's, a mention, he's mentioned again in verse 17. Let's read from verse 16 onward. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down, referring to the destruction of the Lord's vineyard, that is Israel, at the hand of the Assyrians. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. In other words, Lord, bring judgment upon them. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Again, I ask, who is this man of your right hand and the son of man that God made strong for himself? In brief, we must say that he is King David. He is the kings of Israel who descended from David. And above all, he is Jesus the Christ. I want you to listen very carefully to this. These references to the Son whom God made strong for himself, and to the man of God's right hand, and the Son of Man, in the Hebrew it is the word Adam, who God made strong for himself. These references reveal something very important to us. These references to God's Son and the Son of Man reveal that the psalmist has appealed to God for mercy and grace, not according to the terms of the covenant of works transacted with Israel in the days of Moses, but on the basis of the promises of God delivered to King David concerning an everlasting king and an everlasting kingdom, and to the promise that God made to Adam concerning a Savior that would one day descend from him. Are you following me at all here, brothers and sisters? I pray that you are. Here, the psalmist appeals to God for mercy, for grace, for salvation, for deliverance from this destruction that has come upon Israel. But these references to this son help us to see that the appeal is made not on the basis of the covenant that God transacted with Moses, that covenant of works which the people broke, but he is appealing to something else. He is appealing to mercy and grace, for, to God for mercy and grace based upon the promises that God has made concerning a Messiah, a Savior. Think of it. What right did the Mosaic covenant give to the psalmist to appeal to God for mercy and grace? We would say none at all. The terms of that covenant were obey and live, disobey and perish. Israel broke the covenant. God was right to vomit them out of the land. 
that covenant, the Mosaic covenant, provided no grounds at all for the psalmist to appeal to God for mercy and grace. But God did also promise to provide a Savior who would descend from Adam and from Abraham. And to King David, God said, listen carefully, brothers and sisters, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the son that the psalmist appeals to. This is the man of God's right hand. He is the promised son of David, Christ Jesus the Lord. Obviously these promises made to David were fulfilled immediately in Solomon. But God promised to establish an everlasting kingdom through David's descendants. And so here the psalmist is appealing for mercy and grace on the basis of of that. God, you have promised to establish Israel forever and ever. You have promised to place a king on Israel's throne forever and ever. And how are you going to do it, O Lord, if you allow us to be annihilated? If you allow us to be utterly wiped out? The northern kingdom is falling now or has fallen. The Assyrians have overrun them. What about the promise, Lord? What about your son? What about the promised son? And so here the psalmist is appealing to the Lord for mercy based upon that, based upon the terms of the promises made to Abraham and later to David. Stated differently, the psalmist appealed to God for mercy, saying, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. Preserve us and restore us for the sake of the promise you made to David regarding his son and regarding his everlasting kingdom. In fact, I do believe that there is a significant connection between Psalm 80 and the covenant that God transacted with King David as recorded in 2 Samuel 7. As I began to flesh these connections out in this sermon, I realized that I'd run out of space and so I I relented. But perhaps you can read 2 Samuel 7 later today. And if you do, I would encourage you to look for the themes of shepherding and vine planting in 2 Samuel 7. The judges of Israel and King David were called by God to shepherd God's people. That's what we read in 2 Samuel 7. But in Psalm 80, it is God who is called the shepherd of Israel. Why? The answer is this, because the kings of Israel had failed the people. They had already by this time utterly failed the people. And so now the psalmist looks only to God. Where does the psalmist place his hope? Not in the kings of Israel, but in God, the shepherd of Israel, the true shepherd, the good shepherd of Israel. And in 2 Samuel 7.10, God says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. In Psalm 80, the psalmist picks up on this promise and appeals to God to restore this vineyard whose walls are broken down. So the two images that are used 
in Psalm 80 are also present in 2 Samuel 7 in that place where that covenant transaction with David is, is described. God is the shepherd of Israel. Israel is His vine. And here the psalmist is appealing to God on the basis of these promises made to have mercy upon Israel, to restore the vineyard that had been broken down, to preserve this vine for the sake of of the Son, of the promised Son. And so the point is this. Psalm 80 appeals to God for mercy and grace, not on the basis of the covenant that God transacted with Israel in the days of Moses, but on the basis of the promises that God made to King David. And shared themes of shepherd vineyards and promised sons in Psalm 80 and 2 Samuel 7 do help us to see this. Dear brothers and sisters, do you see that God has answered the prayer of Psalm 80? He has. This prayer was offered up perhaps 722 years before the birth of Christ. But God has certainly answered the prayers of Psalm 80. The northern kingdom of Israel was carried away and never did they return. The southern kingdom would eventually fall too. But we know that God preserved a remnant. He preserved a remnant in Babylon And some of those would return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. And so Israel, as a nation under the Old Covenant, was spared in this way. A remnant was preserved by the Lord. And at just the right time, the Christ was born into the world through them. So God did preserve His vineyard. And He preserved it for the sake of His beloved Son and for the establishment of His eternal kingdom. And that is why the New Testament opens with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The New Testament wants us to see that God did indeed keep His promises to Abraham and to David. The Christ was brought into the world effectively through this this nation that God set apart for a time. The prayer of Psalm 80 was heard by the Lord and it was answered by Him. He was indeed faithful to keep His covenant promise. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved, was the prayer of the psalmist and of the faithful of Israel along with him. And this is indeed what God has accomplished. By His mercy and grace, He preserved Israel, His his vine. The Lord Yahweh kept His covenant promises. He blessed Israel despite their sin, and He has provided salvation for them and for all the nations of the earth through the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the son of Adam, who has descended from them. He is the true son, and we are sons of God in him. He is the true vine, and we are the branches. He is the good shepherd, and we are the sheep of his pasture. Brothers and sisters, I have encouraged you to learn from this psalm so that we might know how to pray in distressing times. I've encouraged you to run to God as your shepherd, to bring your complaints to Him with reverence, to remember the mercies of the Lord in times past, and to appeal to the Lord to show you mercy and grace in the future. And I think that it is right that I've encouraged you to pray in this way concerning the discouraging situations that you face in your personal lives. It is right for us, I think, to follow the pattern of the psalmist in this psalm of lament, But we must be careful to see that Psalm 80 
is not about personal trials and tribulations, really, is it? No, it is about the devastation that came upon the kingdom of Israel under the Old Covenant and the desire to see the purpose and promises of God concerning the establishment of His eternal kingdom fulfilled. And we must recognize this and see that God has answered this prayer in Jesus the Christ. And so I must exhort you finally in this way. Let us not lose sight of the big picture purpose and promises of God when facing trials and tribulations of various kinds. Isn't that helpful? Sometimes we can get so bogged down in the trials and tribulations that we face. And yes, we are invited to run to God for He is our shepherd. But it is helpful to always remember the big picture, the big story, the big purposes of God that He is accomplishing even now. Uh, stated negatively, it can be very devastating to us to become so fixated upon our personal problems that we lose sight of what the Lord is doing in and through us and in the world today on till the consummation of all things. Yes, run to God. He is your shepherd. Run to Christ. He is the good shepherd. But let us keep this as our leading concern, not our own comfort and prosperity, but the flourishing of God's kingdom on earth through the church until Christ returns to make all things new. Let's bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this psalm of lament that does help us to see that we are free and invited to run to you when facing trials and tribulations of various kinds. You are our shepherd, and God, you care for us, and we thank you for these truths. But God, we thank you especially for how you answered the prayer of this psalm in sending the Christ into the world through Israel. We thank you for the redemption that has come to us in Him. God, may we cling to Christ always. May we be most eager to see His kingdom flourishing in the world today. May we be most eager to see His kingdom consummated at the end of time. Father, have mercy upon us. Strengthen your church. Send the gospel out from us. Save sinners, we pray, by your mercy and grace. Cause us to flourish here in this place. And Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray these things in His name. And all of God's people say, Amen.